Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program uh, as we are in our 15th year, and it's really a great pleasure to be bringing you these programs uh, as well that um, we just absolutely enjoy doing, and I hope that you will continue to be listening to our program uh, as we uh, come your way on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and Wednesdays for our special edition at 9 a.m. as we're streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We are podcasting uh, all over the place. We start at SoundCloud, and then we're distributed from there to Spotify, iTunes. Uh, we're also on iHeartRadio and a whole bunch of other internet locations, and we're on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. That's right. We record the video portion of our program, and uh, we make that available to you. We also link to our guests' websites. We'll link to our guest today as well and the work that he has been doing. And uh, we also encourage you to uh, take time during this decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. We want you to go within and listen to that still, small voice and just Sit and be quiet and calm and peaceful and, and listen to the guidance, the inspiration, the information, the education. Uh, you know, we just, we just encourage you to do so. As I've shared before, uh, there was a time in my youth when I wondered, there's got to be one place on the planet I can go where nobody else can get to. And then it dawned on me that if I could find it, then so could everybody else. <laughs> then it hit me. <gasps> There is a place. It's that space inside, that inner life, if you will. And so we encourage you to go there where nobody can bother you. Nobody can get to. Uh, and uh, we hope that technology never gets to that space where they can plug in and get there. But with all of that said, I want to welcome to our, uh, our microphones and our cameras, as it were, a gentleman who uh, has been involved in primarily television, but broadcasting for quite a number of years. He has a great book, and the title is fantastic because it is, uh, it, is the, it is the Voldemort, if you will, of broadcasting. Uh, it's a name you do, uh, it's a phrase you do not want to utter, and you don't want to have happen if you can help it. And it's called No Dead Air. And I want to welcome to our uh, microphones and cameras uh, our guest here on the program, who's going to share with us his career reflections from TV executive as a TV executive who saved, believe it or not, um, Barney Miller from Extinction. And I want to welcome Larry Rafkin to our uh, microphones. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure, Richard. Wow, you're on more platforms than, I think, divers who've been Olympic champions. <laughs> you're everywhere. Well, you know... <laughs> They used to say that of, of Elvis, even after his passing. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Um, I have to say that uh, I had the great pleasure of interviewing um, more of a regional individual, but I know he's known internationally nonetheless, uh, a gentleman by the name of Shadow Stevens, who I grew up watching the commercials. In Phoenix, they had an electronics company and stores in Phoenix called Federated, and he used to do commercials for that. He now has a, his own podcast and so forth. But you have been involved... Uh, in NPR, which I'm very familiar with. And I often wonder if uh, people could answer this trivia question. You know, obviously, with NPR, television, you, I, you've got to know the answer to this question. 
Do you remember the children's program, The Electric Company? Oh, sure. Who? Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I didn't even have to ask the question. Uh, and I wonder how many. See, I can intuit. Yeah, well. well, and that's good. I'm you're using. You're, you're in that inside. You're listening to the still yeah, small voice. I went within. inside. You told me to go inside. That's right. I was going to do this outside. Uh, well, you know, we, we could do that one day. If you come out here uh, from Connecticut to uh, to the Santa Barbara area, we'll go out well, on the beach. I've and... been to Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. and I want to go back again. Well, we're, we're still it's here. Beautiful. We haven't fallen off into the ocean yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hoping not anytime soon. But... No, it's a gorgeous place. In fact, uh, I went up uh, the Pacific Coast Highway uh, to see a family member who was uh, at that point struggling uh, physically and my wife and I and daughter and we took a ride all the way up the coast and it was just gorgeous. So uh, you have a great place to be. I'm sure it's hard to hide out there because everyone else has found it already, Richard. Well, that is part of the problem. It's one of those uh, it's conundrums. Where, it's, where can I go that where no one else will find me and, and will bother me? Well, Santa Barbara is not the place because no, everybody wants to be here. <laughs> and I understand that. Uh, I mean, I didn't want to stay in Phoenix because it was just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And that's just one of the reasons. Um, but uh, my career started in Phoenix. I'm curious. Let's maybe start from the beginning and... Uh, how and why did you get into a business uh, that pays, and of course yours is more television than radio, although you've, I'm sure, done radio, uh, right. an industry that doesn't pay real well unless you're real good. Um, and and you, you've stayed in it for as long as you have. I mean, I'm now uh, 43 plus years, and I don't know what, I, I mean, I could do other things, but I don't know that I'd really want to. What about you? How did you well, there's get something sucked so into this? Alluring, I think <laughs> about the microphone and something so alluring about having an impact on the public dialogue or the public um, activities in a community. I talk in my book about the fact that I was actually raised a radio brat. And by that, I mean, my father was the general manager of a station in a city of about 110,000 people. And it was the rock station in the 1960s. And the 1960s is certainly here in Connecticut and around the country, but being between Boston and New York and sensing all that was happening in America and all the changes that were going on. And my father was really in the middle of it all, mm. culturally, uh, with the music changing, with the hairstyles, with all that was going on in America. And I got a bird's eye view of what it was like to be a big fish in a little pond, as my father was. But think about it. The news in the community, uh, the music of the community. He could uh, pull up to another car and recognize that what they were listening to was what he had programmed for that station, that personality. He was just right in the center of town, like in the great downtown that we had in this community. And it felt so right. And even though I had other people on our street, Richard, who were, you know, the commissioner of our local education department, the police chief. I mean, we had wonderful people living right around us. Mm -hmm. But I always thought that my father had the coolest job of any of them because he was in the middle of the culture and he was having an impact on the community that was different than theirs, but clearly as important. And all my friends 
love the fact that I was the son of a guy who ran that rock station in town. And he would bring me Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Instead of fighting with him around the old Victrola, where he wanted to listen to Perry Como and I wanted to listen to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, he was turning me on to that kind of new music. Oh, wow. So it was absolutely wonderful. And I titled the book No Dead Air for that reason. One Sunday morning, Richard, you can relate to this. I walked into my father's bedroom because I was always listening. I was the ombudsman. I was the auditor. I was listening to that station 24-7. And I think it was religious tapes that were on that morning on a Sunday morning back in the 60s. And I said, Dad, you've got dead air. And he said, well, give it five minutes. And if it's still, let me know. Five minutes later, Dad you still have dead air. And my father used to have this saying, Richard, even though he was the sweetest, gentlest, but extremely professional individual. And he would say to all of his guys, make this your last day. Well, in this particular case, <laughs> when he called the radio station, and as you know, nothing rings in a radio control room, because if it did, it'd be ringing all the time, asking for requests, or in your case, I'm sure dates that people wanted to go on, that guy <laughs> with that cowboy hat, you know. Anyway, with all that said, he went down to the station and he found the gentleman sleeping and that was indeed his last day. Yeah. So why would I get into this business? Because I was imbued with it, mm. because it was part of my being. And I thought it was just the greatest thing. And my dad died very young when I was 19. He had a congenital heart problem. Mm. And we never thought a lot about it, but open heart surgery at that time was not safe enough to do. It would have been maybe three to five years down the road when we could have done that, but I lost him early. And then, Richard, I kind of denied that I really wanted to go and follow in his footsteps because they were so big for me. Yeah. I had such respect for him. But in effect, I did. But I did it in a totally different way, went on, got a master's degree, worked for the commissioner of education here in the state of Connecticut, uh, did lots of other things, did public relations, advertising, uh, fundraising. And ultimately, I went into radio as a side gig while I was going on for my degrees. And then ultimately, I came back to it after a very almost 30 year career in television. So it's been a really wonderful ride. It really has. Did you ever work at the transmitter site? Did they have the broadcast facilities at a transmitter site for the stations you worked for? Well, WATR for Waterbury, Connecticut, which uh, is still kind of my home. I do certain things for them from time to time still. Uh, they, do, they moved up to the transmitter site in a <laughs> residential neighborhood. But no, it was the flood of 55, which was really the seminal event here in central and western Connecticut. To give you an example, my father, the night of the flood, and this was the convergence of two incredible storms that back in 1955, Richard, they didn't have meteorologists. They didn't know what was happening to them mm. until it happened. My father was emceeing. Now you can look this up, Richard, because I can tell you're a man who wants to know if I'm telling the <laughs> truth. Uh, a movie called The Girl Rush, and it starred Waterbury, Connecticut's own Rosalind Russell. Mm. Big star, right? You remember her name. Mm -hmm. And Gloria DeHaven. My father was the MC that night, 
And the legend was that he had to take a rowboat about three blocks away to get back to the radio station downtown at that time. And then ultimately, because of all the damage in that area, they moved up to another area of town and they've been there ever since. Mm -hmm. And that's where their transmitting site is. Well, the commercial first commercial station I ever worked for, uh, that's where I started, was at the transmitter site uh, in uh, west of Phoenix in a small town called Tolleson, which it was also licensed to. Hmm. And uh, we were literally only a few hundred feet from the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks. So, um, uh, you know, it gives you an idea of how far out we were. <laughs> now, today, now this was back in the early 80s. Today, of course, that whole area has exploded. It's, you know, it used to just be farm fields. You had one mile square farm fields and I would bicycle to and from work. I think I was about five miles uh, from the radio station's transmitter site. And I, I, a lot of people, they say, well, that explains an awful lot about you. You work too close to the transmitter, you know, and you've been irradiated, you know, and I say, okay, fine. But I, I, it was one of those things that taught me that if there was ever a problem at the broadcast site, you had a place to go. As long as, of course, the engineer uh, and management had decided to, to set up a, a makeshift a, a control room at the transmitter site. And in this case, it was both talk studios and control room. And, mm -hmm. and believe it or not, in this small building, also a production studio. So uh, I then went to work for another commercial station many years later. And we were in the, on the seventh floor of a high-rise. And the electrical system caught fire in the basement, and pff, power was out. And everybody was wondering, well, what do we do? What do we do? And, of course, well, you know, our transmitter site is just three miles away, and we're still in the middle of town, and it's, it is right. too. Why don't we go there and broadcast from there? Well, we, fortunately, we had those these Comrex units, and so we were able to actually set it up to where we were able to broadcast from uh, a high-rise across the street from our broadcast site and we had all of this equipment that i had put together set up and to me that's what was real radio was when you were flying by the seat of your pants you know yeah it's great when you're sitting in studio and you're interviewing your guests whoever they are big or small and you're just you know having the time of your life talking away and you got plenty of electricity and air conditioners working in the summer and so on and so forth and it's going great that's real radio too but when you have to figure out how to do something with, without the usual accoutrement, that is when the real creative aspect. Well, of I'll give you an example. Out. Even uh, there was a storm Tober, they called it back. I think it was 2012 around the storm Sandy, the super storm. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. And it was horrible because we still had leaves on the trees here in New England. And it was just such a difficult day. And everything was out. Power was out everywhere. We were on our generator, you know, capacity at the radio station. And I said, well, look, I live close by, relatively speaking. I'll go in. I went in and did seven hours on the air and had no idea, Richard, what that was going to sound like, what information I would be able to gather. I was all alone at the station. And ultimately, the call started coming in. The mayor the head of emergency preparedness, individuals in different neighborhoods listening on their transistors, and they were able to give me all the information. And we did seven hours, mm. and unscripted, unplanned, no producer. 
And it was just absolutely tremendous. And I always love those situations where we really are the beacon to a community. I mean, it sounds a little overstated, but it really isn't. It isn't, no. No, for many people, and if I go back to that flood of 1955 with my father, he stayed at that radio station for three days. I mean, I was just three years old, but this is the story that ultimately was told. And of course, by the way, Rosalind Russell got out of town that night somehow (laughs) and made it to safety. But it was one of those events. And I've got to tell you, I recount some of that in my book because um, I know you say NPR, but I've got to kind of back up and say, I never really worked at an NPR station, though my uh, operation at Connecticut Public Broadcasting was NPR and PBS. So somehow, even though I was a radio guy, I ultimately ended up with PBS and Ah. not with NPR. I did pledge for them. I would go on radio and ask for money. Mm -hmm. But I was a a TV guy. But if you scratch somebody who's my age, and I'm, well, you're younger than I am. How old are you now? I'm 62. All right, I'm 70. Okay. And, (laughs) And if you scratch, you know, hard enough, a guy my age, you'll always find underneath that TV veneer, is a radio guy. Yeah. Not anymore. Yeah. And people go right to TV and well, what is radio today? I mean, we could talk about that. I think it's really threatened because, you know, in the days when I was getting into the business, if you will, or I was always in the business, mm-hmm. I was born into it. But in fact, we had four local radio stations in this little circumference and we had all local shifts. That meant that so many young people could get their start, whether it was overnight, whether it was the milkman's matinee in the midday, whether it was drive time, if you were that good, or evenings or whatever it might be. Today, in this same market, aside from one Spanish station, there is WATR, which I mentioned before. There are two local live shifts a day. And one's been occupied by the same great guy, who's been there for 35 plus years. Mm. So the opportunities are nil for young people. So everybody goes into podcasting. And by the way, I have a podcast too called americatrendspodcast.com where I deal with social and political issues that are trending in America. I get incredible guests, David Gergen recently, uh, Noah Feldman from Harvard. I get incredible people, but that's not the place to learn. Because guess what? There's nobody telling you with any honesty or with any pedigree that you're good or you're not. Yeah. You just go out and you say, hey, I want to do one about all the middle infielders for the New York Yankees from 1960 to 1985. And your uncle says, that's a great idea. I'm a Yankees fan. And you know what? You have two people listening. Uh, your uncle, somebody he dragged over and nobody's critiquing you. Yeah. Nobody's helping you move forward. So I do worry about this moment that we're in, Richard, yeah. with all the uncurated, not for you. You've been in this business a long time and I have too. So I'm I'm willing and I think uh, fully uh, capable of going uncurated at this moment in time. But I couldn't when I was young. I needed somebody to tell me what was good and what was not. And in the book, by the way, chapter five, I recommend it to you. Will you open it up to that? I absolutely will. No, I can't say what the title is, but this was the best advice 
a program director at the dawn of FM. I was on the air at the dawn of FM when it really became commercially viable, 1975, 76 in that era. And he said, <laughs> I just want you to remember, because we had a brilliant station, Richard, called the Natural 92. And it was all mellow rock, but it was album oriented. Every set would st start up and cascade down. The mood of that station was phenomenal. It was on in every office building, every small shop. Everyone was listening to the Natural 92. And this guy would program it to such a degree that he'd be up at three in the morning and a friend of mine who was on overnight and he played the Pusset Dart Band before he played James Taylor. But that was the wrong order. And Bob, our uh, program director, Bob Craig, called him and said, uh, that was out of order, Steve. I mean, that was how attentive he was to every facet of what was going on at the station. Mm. And Steve said, why don't you go to sleep and wake up in the morning, Bob? But Bob was incredible. But he got us together one day and he said that and that got our attention. I don't know how you want to frame that for your audience. Well, what I can tell you and I'll, I'll use um, uh, modern day um, uh, Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. Um, the quote is people are having coitus to this. All right. We'll yes. put it that context. <laughs> there. That's good. That's good. Almost clinical. Almost, almost clinical. Yeah, exactly. Almost medical. Almost. But, I mean, they, yeah. But, but that got our attention. Yeah. And you know, program directors can beat around the bush or they can say it the way it is. Exactly. Larry Rifkin is my guest. The book is entitled No Dead Air. Duh, you better not have any dead air or I'll be coming, uh, I'll be coming to your place and uh, giving you some, uh, some serious talking, too. Website is Larry Rifkin. That's L-A-R-R-Y-R-I-F-K-I-N dot net. All right, that's a .net. That goes back, uh, that's old school. And uh, uh, But uh, well, hey. Somebody, somebody took LarryRifkin.com before I could get there. Well, uh, we, we, we're going to be linked to your website uh, as well so people can find out more about you and the work that you are doing. As we continue here on Tell Me Your Story, I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it's really a pleasure to have a, a, a fellow broadcaster uh, on, the, on the program to talk about not just... Uh, in in terms of say reminiscing about uh, the days gone by the old the old and golden days of of broadcasting and I use that in the in the broadest sense because it encompasses radio and television I will tell you that one of the one of the concepts that I uh, I, I the philosophy that I have lived by for almost the entire forty three years plus and I actually learned it in broadcast school. I actually, I, now, I didn't go to college, college. I did go to junior college for a whopping three semesters. I accumulated um, 65 credits that have probably expired by now. Uh, I went to a local broadcast school in one of those six months. But you months probably ago. still owe some money on a college loan. For uh, fortunately, no. My, my mother and father took the coupon book from me and said, we'll take care of it. Thank you very much. Talk about getting your, uh, your student loans forgiven, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but then again, the course was only about $3,000. Anyway, they were creating consoles and amplifiers and this and that and the other thing from other pieces of equipment. In other words, very creative and, again, very low budget. But what they were doing was where I developed my philosophy. The philosophy is summed up this way. And I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about this from your experience. 
Work with what you have until you get what you want. And that goes back to my comments earlier about flying by the seat of your pants when something, the power goes out, now what do you do? And uh, um, matter of fact, uh, this has even happened in the past where <laughs> we, would, we would actually lose power at the transmitter site and we would start getting phone calls. And people say, oh, by the, you're off the air. I said, yes, I know. We, we don't have any power here at the transmitter site. Well, well, why don't you do this, that, or the other thing, you know? And, and it's like they didn't even hear me say, we don't even have power at the transmitter site. We don't have a generator, uh, you know. <laughs> and they just, but uh, tell us a little bit about some of your experiences in regards to um, keeping uh, the operations going when diversity, if you will, adversity is the word actually, adversity uh, strikes uh, at the most, usually the most inopportune moments. Well, in the book, uh, No Dead Air, I really try to be honest with the reader about things that went right in my career, things that went wrong, uh, how uncomfortable I felt in many situations because I never quite felt that I was in the right place. Somebody might have put me there thinking they saw potential that perhaps I didn't. I talk about being driven primarily by my feeling of inadequacy, not my feeling that, hey, I'm this great radio guy and whatever. And I always felt in a weird way, Richard, and you may feel totally differently than I do about this particular aspect, that the last performance that I gave, wherever it was, and I was always on the air pleading for money for public broadcasting, and I was very effective at it. I had no notes. It was all unscripted. Mm -hmm. And there were moments, trust me, that were very uncomfortable. And I talk about one in the book that I can recount. But the problem is that I always pushed because I felt that I could never reach wherever I had been again. So even the next day after I did a talk show for seven years, I came back after I took an early retirement from television and I wanted to try this talk radio thing, um, you know, because I had a different political philosophy than many talk show hosts, much more moderate. But I felt that it could work in this community. I felt that women were not really appealed to by many talk show hosts who were so abrasive. I felt I could educate, stimulate, encourage. But with all that said, if I did a show on Tuesday, I feared that was the best and last best show I was ever going to do. And that's why I worked so hard on Wednesday to make that one even better, <laughs> but with no certainty that it would be. Yeah. And I always drove myself from this inner fear and concern. Now, getting back to pledging that night, I want to tell you about the worst experience I ever had on the air. We had been working on a documentary. You know, one of the big things that I did at Connecticut Public Television, aside from bringing Barney the Dinosaur to television, mm -hmm. which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to, yes. but is, is bringing UConn women's basketball to television. And you talked to, to me off the air about some of the Santa Barbara teams and mm -hmm. teams you had in Phoenix. Well, UConn women's basketball, when we arrived on the scene was 1994 before they had any of the banners hung up at Gamble Pavilion. They hadn't won a national title yet. 
And so people in the state of Connecticut, when we decided to experiment with UConn women's basketball, Richard, they fell in love with us. I mean, it was the most successful local franchise in the history of PBS. And I say that it was the most transformative local television franchise in American television history because it wasn't news. Everybody does news. Now, maybe eyewitness news is better than action news in one market, or maybe Fox News locally is better than this or that. But to take a local PBS station, and people watched it for great documentaries, how-to programs, children's programs, but they didn't come to it religiously to get there for a basketball game with this incredible team as it developed over the years with this incredible signal guy by the name of Gino Oriema, who was the main character with us for all 18 years that we had it. And every one of the young women was stellar as a person, as a player, and they had their own personalities that people love. So, I mean, we could get back to this whole Yukon phenomenon because it was the most amazing thing I have ever been a part of, even uh, notwithstanding Barney, which was the biggest thing I've ever done culturally and as a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I was on the air with Jim Calhoun. Now, does that name, are you a basketball fan? Uh, it's vaguely familiar, yes. All right, he won three national titles yeah. with the UConn men's team. Mm -hmm. So because we had this relationship with UConn with the women, we decided to do a documentary about the 100-year history of UConn men's basketball. The problem was the project kept getting away from my producer and he kept asking for more edit time and I kept giving him more edit time, but it was still not enough. So what happened was I end up on the air because we had already scheduled the program and, you know, it's in the schedule and he was scheduled to be with us in the studio. And he's this big man, about six, six, and he had a reputation for being really tough. But it happened that the athletic information officer there loved me because of our relationship with the women. And he was best friends with Jim. And he told Jim, these are good people. You're going to like them. Well, the problem was that the project was not completed. The program, as we went on the air, Richard, was not done. And in fact, the part that really wasn't done at all was the entire Jim Calhoun era oh. because we were short. And I had to vamp and pretend that this all made sense. And then I had a cover story, as I called it in that chapter of the book. And I said, because we want the young people in our audience to enjoy the Calhoun era, and this has run so long, we have so much content here that we are going to air that portion tomorrow night at eight o'clock. So you young people can go to bed and tomorrow night at eight, you'll be able to see it. But of course, Richard, the problem was that it hadn't been done mm -hmm. at all. Right. And my my producer, who was an independent producer, had to go on to another job he was doing. So I stayed back with his notes and with an editor all night long, developing something that we put on the air the next night. But I've got to tell you that the final production wasn't really completed, sweetened with music and all that we like to do for about another three weeks thereafter. But Jim Calhoun was a great sport. We went on the air and it was the most nerve wracking night of my life. Mm. 
Well, I will tell you that uh, there are times when that happens even to this day uh, when uh, we're doing we do live programming on the station here in Santa Barbara. <clears throat> and every once in a while, uh, something will happen. Maybe the guest can't get here. Maybe the host can't even get here. Obviously, in this day and age, since uh, since 2020, obviously, we're using Zoom pretty regularly. Uh, people actually prefer it because they don't have to go anywhere. They just click on the computer and away we go. But sometimes you have Internet interference or this or that or the other. And so I get a I get an email, a text, or a phone call saying, "Hey, can't get in, can't make it, can't can you run an old program?" Well, I archive everything now. I've been archiving right. for for 15 years, and um, sure. And our policy is we're going to run the previous week's live program that we archived, and then I will tag it at the front end with this program originally aired on such and such a date. So that at least, and, and then we have five segments to the program, so that every single segment you're hearing, this program originally aired. I, I wanted to say, this is an encore presentation of generic, but the bosses yeah. know, let's go ahead and tell them when it originally aired. And I said, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. And so I can probably get one, at least segment one up and in the system, in the automation, within about 30 seconds, which mm -hmm. is great. Whereas yeah. back in the days that you and I remember <clears throat> working with reel to reel, uh, it took it, it, it took about the same length of time. If you could find the tape and uh, you could get the uh, you, you, it. get it yeah. all spun in there. Yeah. All set up. And then you had to make sure that it was queued up properly uh, and so forth. And then you, you fire it off. In the meantime, you're changing out cart decks, carts uh, for the commercials to try to fill uh, to, to get it timed out so that you're going you're gonna to get out on time at the end of that program. And that, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a tricky thing, too. But this is, this is uh, fascinating stuff. And I do want to talk about uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Barney the Dinosaur and that whole, that whole area as we continue talking with Larry Rifkin. LarryRifkin.net is the website. No Dead Air is the title of uh, the book, and this is, uh, uh, I, I'm going to say it's uh, an early edition of The Career Reflections from the TV Executive Who Saved Barney the Dinosaur from Extinction as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we're here with uh, the, um, oh, what the heck, I'll go ahead and put it in this context. Barney, Barney the Dinosaur's Savior, uh, along, with, along with your daughter, as a matter of fact, uh, yes. who uh, at the time was in her single-digit years, six, five, six, seven years old. Four. And four, and um, I mean, the, the, the catchphrase or the phrase that everybody knows or knew uh, from uh, 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 Barney the Dinosaur was the song that he would always sing. I love yeah. you, you love me, uh, we're one big happy family, you know. Uh, and that's kind of the title, half of the title of uh, the documentary that, ah. that shows yeah. this, I love you, you hate me. Did and I know th that a lot of parents, they started to get really sick and tired of that song. And it just, it's like, and so they would hear it in the morning and uh, they would it would be in their head all day long, and they couldn't get rid of it, and it's driving them crazy. But the kids it was loved an it. Airworm. Yeah, the yes. kids the kids loved it. Uh, now, about what uh, this was like about thirty years ago. So this was back in the nineties, exactly. uh, nineteen ninety two. Ninety two, and and I'm curious as to how the 
the creation of the purple dinosaur came about? What was the what was the catalyst? Cheryl Leach, um, a mother of a, a young son, was looking for something uh, to keep him occupied. And she developed this character, first starting as a teddy bear, and then decided when she saw that an exhibition of dinosaurs was coming to Dallas, Texas, she changed it to a very soft focused uh, dinosaur, nothing that was sharp, nothing that would be frightful to a uh, young child. And she designed it. She brought along Kathy Parker, she too, a friend and a preschool teacher, and then someone who had production capabilities, Dennis DeShazer. And together they did some home videos called Barney and the Backyard Gang. Now this is before we got involved. But one of those tapes, and she would show them around the neighborhood, she would distribute them, and she was using her father-in-law's production facility because he had just developed one. He had a big printing operation outside of Dallas and she was having success. She was marketing locally, but she was getting into Neiman Marcus. She was getting into various uh, places and it was pretty impressive, the marketing effort that she put on. She studied what was available in home video, VHS at the time. And she found that there were many things that worked like we sing but there were many things that didn't work, but there were elements from each from which she could take and assemble something very new and very fresh. So when I ended up at a home video store on Super Bowl Sunday, 1991, on the main street here in my little town of Prospect, Connecticut, and my daughter asked, well, she was there at the lower shelf, picked out a day at the beach, Barney and the Backyard Gang. We took it home, Richard, and she started wanting to watch it over and over and <laughs> over again. And that was symbolic of what was about to happen in households across America mm. when Barney became a part of the household. But having said that, I called Cheryl Leach on Monday knowing that PBS was looking for something to complement Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in Sesame Street. And because of cable television and Nickelodeon and all that competition, we needed to get more product into the game. So they had a competition. What were we up against? Sherry Lewis and uh, her puppet. Remember? Lamb, Lamb Chop. Chop. Lamb Chop. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the sock. And we were up against Shiny Time Station, which enveloped Thomas the Tank Engine. So they allowed all three of us to be tested. We came on last because we had the most developmental work to do. 30 episodes. We were a year in development. We changed it from Barney and the Backyard Gang to Barney and Friends. We changed the costume a little bit. You saw a different coloration of the character. You saw better production values. You saw better scripts. You saw things that were totally intended to educate the young child in the home but not to play to two audiences like Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. It was really targeted to a younger audience. We got on the air in April of 1992, and you see the subtitle to my book? About a month and a half later, I was called upon as the guy who brought it to PBS to save it because they were in cancellation mode with Barney, believe it or not, mm. without statistics, without sensing what was happening in the culture, this quake that was going on all across America for what would become a cultural phenomenon 
to break out of the PBS cocoon. You know, most of our programs stay comfortably ensconced in that cocoon. There are shows that unless you're a PBS aficionado, you've never heard of them. Yeah. But Barty became a cultural icon and it took a lot of incoming. But the th- concern that I had was less about all that they talk about in the second part of the documentary on Peacock. And I'm in the first part with my daughter. But the part that really concerned me was how bad, uh, badly considered the proposition of Barney was at the highest levels of PBS at the beginning when they decided without any information to cancel this. I turned it back using a number of different methodologies with other programmers. And uh, by the end of the annual meeting at the end of June of that year, so we went on April 6th, by the end of June, we were able to restore it. And PBS saying at the end of that annual meeting, we'll go back and negotiate with Connecticut for another 18 episodes. And then we went on for about 12, 13 seasons worth, but about 17 years worth of material. Mm. Well, I will say that uh, uh, children's programming has certainly changed over the decades. I mean, I I was born and raised and grew up. Uh, we had a local, uh, uh, one of the longest running kids programs in America, but it was a local station, uh, an independent station, and it was called the Wallace and Ladmo Show. And as, what's interesting about that is they have one gentleman, his name is Pat McMahon. He was one of the character actors who would play multiple characters. He played a, a superhero called uh, Captain Super. And uh, he would also uh, do another uh, character, Western uh, Marshall Good, uh, Western, uh, Western Sheriff. But uh, his, his main claim to fame at that time was this bratty, uppity uh, kid uh, who wore this dark jumpsuit with a, a ruffled, kind of like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, little collars on her, on her robe, right? Uh, his name was Gerald, and he was just, he came from a wealthy family, and he was just a brat. Well, interestingly enough, when I was 12 years old in eighth grade, we had to write that uh, infamous paper, What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? And I actually was writing uh, a paper about going into radio. And so I called the TV station. I said, I'd like to interview Pat McMahon. You know, I'm doing this thing, you know. And um, we went down there to the TV station. And, of course, not knowing anything about proper decorum, I'm wearing a tank top shirt, you know. Uh, But I had my little cassette recorder. I wish I still had that tape, too. I have a photograph that was taken of Pat and I. I is 12 and he is whatever the age he was at the time. And he had the long hair back in the in the early right. 70s. And uh, it was probably 25, 20 years later, maybe 25 years later, that I went to work for the number one news talk station in Phoenix, KTAR 620. And Pat McMahon was one of their hosts. So I got to work with and at the station where the gentleman I interviewed to begin my career, although when I got into high school, nothing. I didn't even think about it. It just wasn't even a a thought on my radar at the time. And there I am working at the radio station where this gentleman uh, is is working, along with another big hero of mine, a a gentleman by the name of Bill Haywood, uh, Mm -hmm. who uh, was rather popular out here in the West uh, with um, Don Sanderson Ford. He did their commercials, but he did a morning show on a, one of our local stations. 
And I remember my very, and you might remember this yourself, my very first transistor radio. It's this little square box with these iridescent blue dials on either side, one volume and one tuning. I'd stick it under my pillow, turn it down real low, and I would be listening to that station. Uh, then I moved up to a little pillow speaker that I'd plug into the headset, and I could control the volume better that way. This well, was now, long, bef long before overnight, What's that? Overnight, I still listen to radio by way of Sirius XM. Yeah. And so there I am with my phone on, and my wife often will come upstairs, and whatever I have on, news, sports, whatever, and she'll turn it down. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night. You know what age I said I was. Uh -huh. And I'll have to turn it back on. Yeah. So radio and having that constant companion. I can remember a little general electric transistor radio that was my mother's. And then when she died, I inherited it. Mm. And I remember I was out for a walk with a dog of mine. And I accidentally, instead of throwing the poop bag in a uh, oh, no. container. I threw the radio <laughs> and I had to dive in. I dove in there, Richard. I had to get that radio back. Oh yeah. The sentimentality was too great. Well, I, and I've gone, we both have gone through uh, different uh, derivations of the radio from the headsets, <laughs> you know, that had the radio built into them and so forth. Oh yeah. Uh, and of course now I have earbuds and I put one, I only put one in the ear. I've got to keep one ear open to what's going on around me. I don't want to be um, uh, auditorially blinded, uh, blind by um, uh, of what else may be happening. Well, I'll tell you, I don't put anything in because I lost some hearing mm -hmm. because of powering my headphones at a radio station. Right. But more importantly, because I'm a drummer. And so drummers will lose our high frequency right. because those cymbal crashes, yeah. they really do a number. Yeah. So I, did, I can't say I, I lost it in the military or on a construction job, but right. I lost it behind a drum kit and behind a radio console. Well, I, that was one of the things, of course. There were, there were two things that I wanted to make sure that I did not uh, inherit from uh, – uh, the the um, the people that went before me in broadcasting. One of them was the hearing. I did not want to lose that. So I never, uh, and of course I never worked, well, I worked for one music station, but it was a country station. And you didn't turn your headphones up high like at a rock station. Um, and, well, uh, you didn't want to hear the music. Uh, well, no, I did. I'm, kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> My wife loves country. I, I, I actually uh, uh, grew to have really have a great affinity for country music. Uh, I still ask the question of certain songs that come up today on the country station I listen to here in Santa Barbara. What is country? Because that doesn't sound like country to me. It's well, you know, that's like a pop. great point. My wife you know? was listening the other day and I said, is that your country station? Because it sounded like hip hop. Yeah, but I think what people don't realize is that country historically has really been a great mirror <laughs> as to where the culture is going yeah. and it evolves and changes. And now I'm writing a lot of my own music. Oh, you are. It. Oh yeah. I, I, I'm having the most fun doing that. But not only that, I record demos. And if anybody wants to hear any of them, it's up <laughs> on Larry Rifkin on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. And it's just me having taught myself keyboard enough to accompany and write songs. Now, I've got this guy in Boston with whom I'm working, who has an angelic voice, plays every instrument spectacularly, uh, can arrange and layer everything. 
And now I'm having him record my stuff. And now there's a group out in California called Taxi.com. Mm-hmm. And I'm offering up some of our songs because my goal this year, having written a book and now I'm doing this national publicity for it, being in that documentary, is to sell a song or two. And I'll tell you, any of them could become country. I mean, they're more rock, adult, contemporary. Mm-hmm. But they really could be made into country songs. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have to say that... that uh, uh, the other uh, thing that I do not want to inherit from my uh, from my predecessors, not all of them, not all of them, but some of them, I've seen some of them, mm-hmm. uh, is you and I, we both know that whether it's television or radio, we sit a lot. Mm-hmm. All right. And the waistline begins to grow on some of them because of the way in which they eat and they don't exercise. You know, the most exercise they get is going from the control room uh, to the restroom and then back again or going out and back to have a smoke. Uh, and I, I, I said, no, I am not going to allow that to happen to myself. And thank goodness I have not. But I, one of the things that I wanted to make sure of was that I, 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 I see, I got into this business and I actually decided I was going to go to broadcast school, even though it was a six month course for one reason and one reason only. And this was at that time to meet young women. No. Didn't, oh. Matter of fact, that didn't even, didn't even cross my mind. Uh, what it was was that I wanted to make a difference in this industry. See, in the early 80s, Ronald Reagan deregulated the industry. Now, I've, I've, I've been corrected that it wasn't until 87 that he did away with the Fairness Doctrine, which we could talk about. But when he deregulated the industry, he did away with the third-class license. Now, I'm in a broadcast school at this time. And we're studying and studying and studying and studying. And I still have the manual, the, the study manual for the third class license. Yeah. And we go down to the FCC and we're uh, there. And, hey, we're uh, here to take the third class test to, to get our third class license. Oh, you didn't hear? Uh, well, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. It's been deregulated and you don't need it anymore. And that hurt, not just because we had studied. But from my perspective, that said that anybody and their brother could get into this industry without any experience, without any knowledge of what AM and FM was to start with. Well, how to do transmitter reading. How to do transmitter reading. We all had to do that. And and by the way, I say in my book, it was the only license. You know how certain people have to get all kinds of pedigrees. My wife is a physical therapist, Mm -hmm. Richard. So she's gotten more certifications in different fields. And I... I, I truly am impressed so much by that. But in my career, the only license that I ever had any pedigree was that third class license. I won. And then they did away with it. Everything else, there's nothing, there's no manual about anything that I ever did as a program director, as an announcer, as a talk show host. There were no standards except those that were imposed upon you by your management mm-hmm. or your own good sense. Yeah, yeah. I so much wanted to put that on my wall. I was yeah. so looking for it. Now all I have is this little box top that's got a stamp on it uh, <laughs> from from 19, uh, 1980. And it was it was a disappointment to the even to this day. It's like if only I had got, if only we had gone two weeks earlier, I would have that on my wall. Even though today it doesn't really mean anything per se, but. Um, because, you know, you and I, we've, we've, we've reached a level where, you know, we don't, don't really need that. But I, uh, those, those, uh, those were, were, were great times. 
And I will tell you that one of the uh, best times that I ever had, I mean, there have been quite a number of them, but early on, when I was working for a radio reading service for the blind and visually impaired called oh. Sun Sounds Radio Reading Service. Now, we were only on from eh, not, not quite sunrise to sunset, and we were broadcasting on the subcarrier of the local PBS station. Yes, we to, used to rent that out. Yeah. And uh, when they would shut down, I would go in because I was one of their uh, board ops. At the time, that's what they were called. I call them producers today. Yes. That's what yeah. they are. That's what they were. That's what they are. And my best friend, who I can say I have known and I'm still connected with him for 50 years. Now, bear in mind, I'm 62. I've known him for 50 plus years. We went to grade school, high school and college together. And um, we would go into the radio station. I'd, I, hey, we stopped by the store. We'd pick up a bunch of garbage goodies, you know, uh, circus peanuts and candy corn and sodas and all of this, pe uh, 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 potato chips and blah, 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 snacks. And we'd yes. go into the, uh, he'd go into the studio. I'd go into the control room. I'd load up a reel-to-reel. -reel, and then we'd bring in a bunch of records. And we would just play. We would just play. Yeah. And, and I have, I still have two or three of those reel-to-reels. And I was listening to one of those thinking, oh, my God, this is going to sound so bad. It's just going <laughs> to be awful. I couldn't believe how good it sounded. Wow. It was amazing. And how much fun we were having. And we would read from different things and we would joke around. And then I'd throw the reel-to-reel -reel in reverb. You know, I'd put it in the play mode while it was recording <laughs> off of the playhead, and I would play around with the reverb, and we'd sing songs with the reverb. And then, of course, one of my favorite idols, who has since passed, who used to use that, not a lot, he'd use it judiciously, I believe, uh, in the right places, was Stan Freeberg. Oh. And, um, matter of fact, I was introduced to Stan through my best friend, whose brother had purchased his double album of the United States of America, the early years. Mm. Uh, and um, so that's what I would do. We would go into the station and we would just, we'd just goof around. You know, we weren't destroying anything. We were playing radio. Now, <laughs> the irony is that if anybody had their receiver on to the subcarrier, they'd probably be hearing what we were doing. <laughs> but... It was it was it was fun, and of course, um, uh, just some of these other experiences. As you, well, it's funny that you say that about the uh, reading service for the blind. Yes, because when I went to casual employment, as I like to call mm -hmm. this period, I do a podcast, as I said, mm -hmm. post two a week. Again, americatrendspodcast.com. Yeah, I'm very proud of the content, uh, and I also do twice a week. Uh, reads for Chris Radio, Connecticut Radio Information Service, which is a reading service for the blind. So this morning I did editorials from Connecticut Papers, the New York Times, the New York Post, and a half hour of unread, unseen, previous to this, mm -hmm. a copy that can be a little turgid, can be a little difficult with different uh, patterns in each. The New York Times writes very differently than the New York Post. Mm -hmm. And there you are trying to give what I consider to be a good, strong read 
with as few mistakes as possible, though they want you to keep them in. Yeah. You know, you're a reader. You don't have to pretend, you know, that everybody that we have on the air is a professional broadcaster. Right. And I've gotten really close, Richard, to a perfect blemish free read. But it's hard. Yeah. 30 minutes. Yeah. Now, you know what they call that. And in the old school, they they called it cold reading. Oh, yeah. Or rip and read. No, rip rip and read. Rip and read is another term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, yeah. uh, the state, the commercial station I worked for, which just happened to be a Christian station back in the 80s and early 90s, uh, out at the transmitter site. Because did it convert? We, did it convert? Uh, <laughs> I just got that. Um, <laughs> we had worked out at the transmitter site and they had a UPI uh, teletype uh, oh, yeah. machine and you'd go in there and rip and read. Now, they showed me. Because we would have to change the ribbon, probably at least once a shift, because uh, it was constantly on. And then, of course, re- run the paper through. And, of course, the first few times you do it, you've got ink all over your fingers. I got so good at it, I could do it without getting any ink on my fingers. Wow. I mean, I just, I, I just figured out a way to do it without doing, without having a problem. Anyway. Well, you know that- the best copy that I still have left from Associated Press mm-hmm. that I held on to was the night I was in the studio because they had all hands on deck when Richard Nixon resigned the presidency. Oh, wow. 1974. I kept that. It's somewhere in my basement. And I'm going to go looking for it right after this interview. Well, I no. have I have in a file in a file drawer and I know where it is. Uh, UPI, uh, AP UPI wire copy from the first shuttle launch um and uh so so, you know it's like it's amazing the things that we collect through our careers that we think are so important you know well Um, even to write this book i had to go back though i did a lot of the book out of memory yeah you know i mean it was really the highlights uh doing concerts with carol king and Bobby Vinton, mm. Gene Penny, and uh, the British Invasion with Jerry and the Pacemakers and Eric Burden and the Animals. I had a lot of high points or, you know, telling stories about Charlton Heston when oh. I got him to say that he enjoyed PBS documentaries. <laughs> and he said, should I read this? I said, Mr. Heston, I'm talking about American experience. I'm talking about Ken Burns, Nova. He said, all right. But he said, I then want to read this poem. And I said, might I see it before you do? And I looked at it. It was beautiful. And I said, Mr. Heston, did you write this? He said, Robert Frost. (laughs) And my retort was, better yet. (laughs) Which is the chapter in my book, Better Yet. (laughs) Better Yet. Well, I I, and and I I have a question for you that I'll ask at the end of the program. I ask all of my guests three questions and we'll get to that. But uh, it's it's one of those things where you take a look back at your career, whatever it is. And there are those seminal moments uh, that will will uh, are embedded. One of them, of course, is that time when we were working out of that conference room when we lost the power in the high rise. But uh, another was Veterans Day. I can't, I think uh, I was 19, it had to have been 1999, yeah, 1999, Veterans Day, uh, uh, here on the seventh floor, we're looking out over the Phoenix uh, skyline and everything, and uh, we're doing a Veterans Day show. Now, the gentleman who was the morning show host, his name was um, uh, uh, Austin Hill, and... um, Was that his real name? That was his real name. 
Yes. Okay. Because and, you know, in this business. Oh, I know. People change their names. I have always used my real name too, by the way. Uh, I never, uh, other than the fact that uh, since I started working in, in Santa Barbara, I was given the name Dr. D. Now, I, on my business cards, have always had uh, audio physician because I do archival work. I will uh, archival, I'll help you to uh, retrieve the audio from your 78s, your reel-to-reels, your cassettes, and so forth. Uh, but <clears throat> this particular Veterans Day, there we are in studio, and the, the, the run-up to it was that the program director says, look, Austin, he's a great host, he's very intelligent, but he's not very emotional, and we need to bring the emotion out in him during this Veterans Day show. And they lined up congressmen. They lined up veterans. We had, we had John McCain on uh, and, and so forth. And we had many others who were there to talk about Veterans Day and what it means and so forth. So we start out at 6 a.m. and we go to 10, four hours. All right. And I'm behind the board and I'm getting everything lined up and the automation and, okay, this audio file and that, this, and then get the phone calls on the air and everything. And I have to tell you that... <clears throat> Those four hours were, from even from my perspective, and I will say this humbly, were perfect. There wasn't a flaw. And I felt so proud when the closing music played and Austin did his sign-off. Uh, and, and we went to the news at the top and then on to programming, network programming. Now, first of all, Austin Hill, intelligent, like you wouldn't believe. Great mind. At the end of the four hours... He is sharing his final comments and commentary, and he starts to break down. He starts to tear up. And I first thought went through my mind was, well, no, no. The program director said, program director said we wanted to see if we could get a little emotion out of him. We didn't want to make him cry. Hmm. But the big moment for me after the realization of what a perfect four hours it was, the program director came into the control room stood in front of the console between me and my view of Austin in the studio, put out his hand and said, four stars. Mm. Wow. I, and, and believe it or not, we would record the entire four-hour stint for Austin every day. I have that CD. I still have that CD of that Veterans Day performance of his and the work that I did. And I just... And that was one of those seminal moments for me that just uh, uh, will uh, will always be a part of my memory of, of uh, some great radio that I was a part of. I, again, and I say I was a part of because it wasn't just me. And that's great to say because with radio, oftentimes you almost see it as a solo act, whereas television is truly a composite truly an orchestration yeah. of so many talents. Yeah. And there are a lot of us who, you know, in television, you're, you're really playing a different game yeah. altogether yeah. from a collegial standpoint. With radio, you can get into that control room alone yeah. and need no one else yeah. but your imagination, your callers, your yeah. music, your information, and you can do it yourself. That's why I think a lot of radio people are a lot less, um, well, outward, Mm -hmm. and extroverted than people think they want to be heard but they also want to disappear yeah in many ways. they want a certain amount of anonymity right yeah exactly 
Except I, when they're on a remote. I, and, exactly. And real people. Oh, my God. That's a whole other area we could go into. <laughs> I won't. I won't right now, but I, so, I always loved remote. And I'm going to have to run shortly because I have a podcast I have to do. Okay. Shortly. Well, we won't, we won't keep you too much longer. Um, I want to remind our listeners we are talking with Larry Rafkin. Rifkin. No dead air. Larry Rafkin is my guest. LarryRafkin.net is the website where you can uh, connect with all of his other endeavors, including his podcast, American Trends, which I'll tell you what, we'll save that for another time because I would love to have you back to to continue this conversation, especially about American Trends and what you're dealing with in terms of the changing social and political at, uh, uh, um, uh, atmosphere, if you will, uh, and, and how... My God, it has changed so much. I may not have liked Ronald Reagan's uh, politics, but I would have sat down to have a drink and have a chat with him about broadcasting and, and the industry because uh, uh, he was such a fascinating individual. I would have done the same thing with George Bush, including Bill Clinton, even George W., uh, as well as Barack. The last guy, not a chance. Uh, the current guy, if he lives long enough, I'll, I wouldn't have a problem with that. But uh, I hear you. But I do. Uh, I but the thing that I love is is the fact that, that if we can get beyond the the su- the surface stuff, the BS, and get to the heart of what's really important, uh, that's what's really important. We want you to stay with us here as we continue talking with Larry Rafkin on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host of Tell Me Your Story. We're talking with Larry Rafkin. Rifkin, not Rafkin. Rifkin. Larry Rifkin. No dead air. See, I didn't pause and say. <gasps> No, it's Larry Rifkin, and we hope that you'll get a copy uh, of his book. It's available on Amazon and all of the other great outlets and so forth. Go through his website, too, as well. Larry, I have three final questions, and I'm going to jump jump right to them because we both have to move on to other things here. But, uh, again, I want to thank you for giving us so much time and... Uh, not only great memories of yours, but even uh, recollections that I, I didn't hadn't thought about it's in been quite fun. a while. It's been fun. So we'll jump right in, and uh, we'll ask the first of those three questions that I've been asking for the past 15 years. And the first one is, who is Larry Rifkin? He's just a guy from the state of Connecticut who always wanted to serve the people in my state who feels very much at home here. And somehow, given the opportunity through public broadcasting, where all programming really originates and emanates from a local community, either a public television station or an independent producer, was given the opportunity to play hardball on a much bigger stage and to bring out documentaries, concerts, children's programming, a sports phenomenon, and really have an impact well beyond the borders of the community that I serve. What is your life's purpose? My life's purpose, I think, is to really be open to other people, their ideas. I opened up public television in Connecticut to independent voices and producers. I listened to my four-year-old daughter when she told me that there was something of value that likely my years as an adult And my cynical mind could never have been open to alone. Mm -hmm. And that was the wonder and the possibility of Barney the dinosaur. So I think listening to other people and recognizing that all good ideas do not reside in your mind or your shop or your closed door behind which you are hiding, that you need 
to talk and to express yourself, but you also need, more importantly, to listen to others. And I hope you get the uh, reference uh, in this last question. What was your best day? My best day. Well, given everything that we've been through together and the fact that we're 44 years in and that without my partner, my wife, uh, I never could have had the life, uh, the comfort, uh, the stability that I had. That, by the way, when you watch the documentary, they talk about the instability in a lot of lives affected by Barney. As much as I was deeply involved with it, I was not overcome by some of those forces. And a lot of that has to do with my wife, who is chapter six in the book. And so I'd have to say January 15, I call her chapter six now, uh, January 15, uh, 1978. That was probably the most important day. Mm. Well, Larry Rifkin, I want to thank you again for giving us so much time. I know you have to run to produce a podcast and uh, we will get together again to talk about uh, the content and context in which you talk about American trends. I think it would be a fascinating conversation. And thank you again for being with us. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you and continued success on all those platforms. Well, thank you. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast podcast video cast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am listening.